You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. On Event Horizon and my own channel, we spend a large portion of our focus on futurism. Indeed, futurism and all that comes with it is important to what we do as we try to understand this universe in which we live. That's why I'm excited today for us to be sponsored by Kaspersky to discuss Earth 2050 Project. Our world is rapidly changing throughout these past few decades. New inventions, ideas, and technology have had a major impact on the whole of humankind. With this comes some uncertainty. Technology has become essential in our everyday lives, but some fear change, asking if the future is doomed, or could we very well be on the verge of a new era? With Earth 2050, go on a journey with noted scientist and science fiction author David Brin, as we learn more about what challenges we face to live in a world where the physical and virtual interact in new ways. With the Earth 2050 platform, you can use it as both a sci-fi encyclopedia and share your own unique opinions and predictions on what our future will bring us. I notice that you can switch between 2030, 2040 and the year 2050 to see on the map just what predictions are being made about certain places. Right, Anna. You can share predictions, like them and post your own comments on them, telling others what you think this world will be like. View predictions from... Stephen Hoffman, Martin John Rees, and from our friend Isaac Arthur. The work of a futurist is never done, as you know by being a viewer of Event Horizon. Don't miss out on your chance to make predictions about what Earth 2050 will look like. To learn more, follow the link in the description and see the future with your own eyes. Read predictions, leave likes and comments, see illustrations, and even predict the future yourself. In today's episode, John is joined by Dr. Klaus Pontopidon. Dr. Pontopidon is an astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute. He works on the formation of planets and the origin of our own solar system. He also works as a James Webb Space Telescope project scientist. The James Webb Space Telescope is the scientific successor to the Hubble Space Telescope and the Spitzer Space Telescope. As the largest optical infrared telescope ever launched into space, it is expected to spot the most distant galaxies in the universe, dust, and molecular gas around young stars in the process of making their own planetary systems, and not least, to characterize the atmospheres of exoplanets. Dr. Klaus Pontapadan, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, Doctor, finally, after all of the waiting, and people are going to ask me about this, of course, after all of the waiting for the James Webb Space Telescope, we're finally here. We're getting close to launch. So what are the steps now that you guys are going through to get this thing into space? And when is the launch? Right. So we're going through the very last steps. Everything is built. There's just a few activities left on the observatory. I just saw the other day that uh, in a press release from ESA, who is providing the launch vehicle, that they were shipping the, uh, the second stage to, right now to Kourou in South America, where, from where it will be launched, that's the ESA spaceport. So there's basically the shipping left of the observatory itself, 
and the integration on the launch vehicle and, and the launch. The main thing we're waiting for right now is there is one launch of the Ariane 5 rocket left before JWST in the manifest. They had just very recently at the end of last month, they had a successful Ariane 5 launch, which they had a bit of a pause to work out some technical issues with the launch vehicle that was successful by all by all accounts. So there's one more launch left and it takes them about two months to turn around and, and, and set up another launch vehicle. And right now on the manifest, it's that set for October 15. So you can do the math, but everything looks looks very good. I mean, we, I can't give you a date or a, or a, or a week for the launch, but but that's that's roughly where it's going to be. And as we get closer, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll know better. Now, what are going to be the first steps once the telescope is up there and in place, you're going to have to do some testing, right? And calibrating and things like that. So what does that look like? That's right. That's right. There's, there's a sort of an unusually long process before we can see any science data. It takes six months for the telescope and the rest of the observatory to become ready to take science data. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first thing that happens after launch is that it's set directly on course to L2, which is a point in space, about a million miles out of Earth on the other side of the, of the moon's orbit, which is a nice and stable point. We need to be out there because Webb is an infrared telescope, so it has to be quite cold. The mirror itself has to be about 50 Kelvin above, so above zero minus what, 270 degrees Fahrenheit or more. So in order to, to, to get that cold, it can't be close to the moon, it can't be close to the Earth, it will heat it up. So it has to travel out there, it takes a few weeks, and on the way it has to cool down to, to those cryogenic temperatures. And it has to be done in a, in a fairly controlled way for various reasons. It also, another big famous part of this observatory is that it's much too large to fit inside the Ariane 5 fairing, so it's all folded up. The mirror itself, consists of 18 segments, six of which are folded behind, like a pair of ears, to fit inside the fairing. And so those have to be deployed. So you get the full primary mirror, six and a half meters across. And we also have to unfold a sun shield that helps to, to, to shield the, the science payload, the, the, the mirror itself and all the instruments from the heating light of the sun. It has five layers in it. Again, that, that gets unfolded through a complex process. One of the big time sinks in, in, this, uh, uh, in this whole process is to focus that mirror. And you can imagine that you're, you're moving those wings out. That's a, that's a, that's a movement of, of several feet, right? But the mirror itself has to be focused to precision on, of just a few nanometers. So it's, so it's this enormous order of magnitude problem. You make this big movement, you have to make these tiny movements to, to shape the mirror just right. And of course, it's never been a, any, nothing like that has been attempted in, in space before. So it's a long and, and, and arduous process to look at, at reference stars and focus the, the mirror on them. First, you focus each of the 18 segments and then you, you, you put all the segments together you know, to, to be able to point in the same direction until you have a final beautifully focused image of the star. And that, that, that takes a, a month or two to do that. And then after that, then you have to check out the four science instruments, which have a lot of different science modes. We can take a lot of different types of data, not just imaging, but uh, there are many modes that uh, are able to take spectroscopy, 
depending on how you count, I think it's 16, 17, or 18 different science modes. And you have to check all of them out, make sure they work. And once all that is done, then we can go ahead and start actual science observations. So folks should you know, consider that it'll take about six months before we see anything really spectacular. And so it's just a, just a matter of expectations. The large sunshade to protect it from the sun seems awfully big. Now, is solar pressure an issue here? I mean, will you have to adjust for this thing acting like a solar sail? That's an excellent question. The answer to that is yes, absolutely. The solar radiation will indeed, uh, indeed push on this on this sun shield and basically turn the uh, the telescope by, by turning force on it. And and the uh, the direction of that force depends on where the, the observatory is looking at any given time, right? We'll be looking all over the sky. We can't look everywhere in the sky at the same, at the same time, but over a year we'll be, we'll be looking, we'll be able to look at every point in the sky. So the, that force never evens out. So over time it builds up, builds up angular momentum in the observatory and that gets picked up by, by reaction wheels inside the, uh, the spacecraft. So they build up speed and they build up speed and eventually they, they reach their limit and you have to slow them down again, and that is done with a with a rocket burn, and so that has to be done done regularly. Um, and that's actually the limiting factor of the of the um, observatory lifetime. That and keeping it at L two, the amount of rocket fuel we have we have available. The requirement on the observatory in terms of lifetime is five years of science operations. Uh, we will have fuel for at least 10 years and it looks like it depends on the launch uh you know how successful it is but it, it may be significantly more than that but it, it's a very good question uh, yes uh, solar radiation plays a significant role now with hubble and hubble's lifetime we were able to extend it because it's in low earth orbit and we were able to service it with human missions with this age of spacex and you know multiple launch systems and moving further and further out on the solar system. Is there any possibility of ever servicing the James Webb? So it's it's certainly not built for that. There are, there's a, would be a lot of technical issues doing that. So I think the, the short answer to that is that, that folks should not expect that that, that is really an option uh, for, for Webb. I think it's a very good point that for, for any future large flagships, I think it should be an important consideration to design them that way. But there, there, there are aspects of this, even if it, if it were closer to the Earth uh, than it is, aspects of the construction of this observatory that makes it hard to service. For one thing is, is that it's so cold. Uh, that's something that would make it very hard for an astronaut to even touch. So that, that's one, one important difference that would just make it a lot more of a challenge to, to service an infrared telescope than an, than an optical telescope like Hubble. In regards to what James Webb is going to be looking at. Now, this gets into what the original intent was, which is to study in infrared the early universe because of uh, looking at very early galaxies and they're redshifted. So you need to look in that area of the spectrum. What else can we do with James Webb in infrared? What What is the profile of study of the universe that we can do outside of exoplanets or anything like that, but just actual true cosmology? Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent question. And it is really what excites me about this observatory is that its infrared capabilities opens windows and potential projects, things that we just couldn't do in any other way. It's, it, we, in the, on the Earth, ground-based observatories and infrared, we're really limited. Like one of the big things we're limited by is the transmission of our atmosphere. 
in particular due to water vapor, but also other things like carbon dioxide uh, absorbs light as it passes through the atmosphere. Right? That's one reason for the, uh, for the greenhouse effect. And it means that if you're interested in observing molecules that are really important for many things, including life, but also other things, water, methane, carbon dioxide, all this other good stuff, you have to go to space to do it. And that's, that's a capability that, that Webb has. So it allows us to really much better understand this, this cold, colder molecular universe. Like one, one area that I personally work on that I find very exciting is that is to understand the, the composition of exoplanets. So you say not, not exoplanets themselves, but where they come from and our origins. The Earth, for example, we know that uh, it's not straightforward to deliver the, these volatile elements, the, the molecules of water and other things that are so important for life. It's not easy to deliver those to a planet like the Earth. And the reason is that the Earth formed in a place where temperatures were too high for, for water to be to exist in, in the form of ice. And so they don't condense out to form an Earth-like planet. They have to be delivered later. It's a very well-known old issue. Likely in the Earth, it, it got delivered in the form of comets or, or maybe asteroid impacts. Uh, but there are other uh, parts of the Earth that that were delivered in, in similar ways. But an important one, for example, is nitrogen. Nitrogen is a very common element, but only about one in a million of the nitrogen atoms that were available uh, ended up on the Earth. So there was a huge filter. You can imagine that we had 10 times the nitrogen being delivered to the Earth, we would have 10 times the atmospheric pressure, we would have a very different circumstance. So why did we get what we got? And is that really a common thing? If you form a terrestrial planet, will it look like the Earth? Will it be, will it be very different? And I think in order to understand that, you really have to look at the process of planet formation while it occurs. And that, that is something that Web can do through its mid-infrared capabilities. It can measure the molecular composition of, uh, of planet-forming disks at distances from the star where uh, terrestrial planets form and outwards. So, so at, at about one astronomical unit, one to 10 astronomical units. And you can't really do that with any other facility. So I'm, I'm very excited about the prospects for, for being able to understand it better and really answer the question whether the Earth is a common occurrence or not, uh, you know, how much, how, how random it, uh, is the, uh, the, the composition of, of planets and linking the process of, of their formation to, to what we'll learn about, about exoplanets. Apart from that, I can go on. <laughs> there, there are other things, there are other, other subjects that, that have come up only in the past few years, really, that were never imagined when the observatory was first designed. An important one of them is, the, uh, is this phenomenon of kilonova, completely different subject, uh, that were discovered as part of, of uh, the LIGO gravitational wave detectors and other gravitational wave detectors, right? So these are, these are colliding neutron stars. When they collide, they basically shake the universe. And in this coll collision, it is thought that they give rise to the formation of some very important elements, such as gold, for example. Uh, uh, but also other other elements, uh, and, and may, they may you know, be the source, uh, you know, one of the major sources in the universe of those elements. Webb will be able to, for the first time, follow up on on neutron-neutron uh, star collisions. So you imagine that one will be detected by a gravitational wave detector. We'll be able to to go and look at it, and we'll measure the composition of that debris that comes out of it, and really understand the origins of those elements. You couldn't do that in any other way. So there are several programs, quite a number of programs in cycle one that aim to do just that. 
Um, so I find that that's fascinating. So yeah, um, I, can, I can go on and on. It, it's really, I think, it, 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 you'd be hard pressed to find an area of astrophysics that uh, an observatory, a general purpose observatory such as Webb doesn't touch in some form or, or other. Now, the idea, I have to follow this up, the idea of a kilonova producing all sorts of precious metals, that, that essentially is a nebula made of gold and platinum and other heavy elements. And that's actually out there, apparently, and Webb can help to characterize that. Mm -hmm. That's right. Now, do you do you anticipate that these that this works like a supernova remnant where it just sort of expands out over time and <laughs> metal nebulas exist? Yeah, I mean, I, I think if they form other things potentially as well, it's just that you need you need their environment to form specifically those elements. But I, I don't know if that if that is only that those are the only ones they form. But yeah, otherwise, I think I think that the idea is that it will be something like a supernova remnant, right? It expands, it cools, it forms. It first, it forms those elements. You know, we know in supernova remnants there's active formation of dust, right? So they, you know, it's not just you don't end up with a gas of, of gold. So it, 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 they coalesce into 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 solids, dust grains, uh, from where they can be mixed into the general interstellar medium of the galaxy that they're in and, and be used for you know to build planetary system somewhere down the line. Now, is it still on the table that, say, like Earth's gold or silver or whatever, is thought to be a super remnant of a supernova itself? So is it possible that there are two different mechanisms in the universe for the production of heavy elements like this, both the kilonova and the supernova? Yeah, they're, they're, there's probably source, uh, both are, are, are potential sources. My understanding is, since it's not my area that I work in, but my understanding is that when you add it all together, it looks like kilonova, and you count how many there are of each and how what you think the production rates are, that, that kilonova may be the dominant part for some of these elements. And I think an important answer that, that Webb can, can generate is that that will actually be, be able to measure the production rates of these elements so you can... You can more definitively answer exactly that question and say, well, you know, those, they, most of those elements are actually formed in kilonova or, or not. But we know very little about them right now because we don't have the sensitivity to, to make that determination with existing facilities. Now, in regards to the nuts and bolts of this, so how much bigger and how much more capable relative to the Hubble Space Telescope in visible light, whereas this is infrared, but how much bigger is, is James Webb compared to Hubble? Yeah, so Hubble has a primary mirror 2.4 meters in diameter, and Webb, it's not exactly round, right? It's hexagonal, but on, along its longest edge, it's six and a half meters. So it's, it's almost three times as big in diameter. And there is some overlap in wavelength coverage between Hubble and Webb. And where they overlap, the improvement in sensitivity roughly scales as, as the difference in, in, in area. So, so it's a factor of, you know, maybe up to 10, 10 or so, something like that. What really makes a huge difference is once you go out really into the infrared beyond where Hubble could, uh, could observe, there you'll make a comparison with either a much smaller telescope, like the Spitzer Space Telescope, for example, which was, it's almost 10 times smaller, or even ground-based telescopes, which are bigger, the infrared but if you try to observe in the infrared from a ground-based telescope one one issue we already talked about and that's transmission of the atmosphere but another issue is that the earth itself and the and the and the atmosphere of the earth shines brightly in the infrared and there's room temperature you know every, everything shines brightly so so it, it's really 
The comparison is that all infrared ground-based telescopes observe essentially as if it's broad daylight. So the difference you get in performance from the previous generation to web at infrared wavelengths is, is, is really like you, you know, imagine a species that has lived their whole life and on, on a day side of a planet, you know, have never been able to experience night. And then they travel to the night side with their telescope and start observing there. And then they suddenly realize that the sky is full of stars and there's a Milky Way and all that stuff. That, that's really the difference. So, so it's in, in areas, it's, uh, it's a difference maybe of a factor of a thousand in sensitivity. In some areas, down to a hundred, something like that. So it's, it's really transformative. And that's where you get into a regime, I think, where it becomes very difficult to predict what we're going to see. I think you'll find that a lot of astronomers, scientists, they can extrapolate an order of magnitude. Right. We've already scratched the surface of this thing. Or, you know, we know if we, if we get an order of magnitude better, we, we think we know what we're going to see. But when you're talking a factor of 100 or 1,000 times more sensitive or better, nobody can predict what we're going to see. This is pure discovery space. And, and, and it's, it's, it's all unknown. I, mean, I, I, I get very excited about just thinking about things that, we, that just might pop out that we had no idea that, that we would find in that, in that regime. One question about Actually, I have two questions, but uh, the first one is studying very hot environments like the accretion disk of a black hole, which is something that we really haven't looked at <laughs> very, very deeply yet. Is that on the table for James Webb, studying black holes like that? Y yes, I, th I think that like the, the really the central accretion disk around a black hole uh, is indeed, I mean, it's so hot that it will emit most of its light in, in X-rays. And you need an X-ray telescope to really understand that accretion physics in there. But there are quite a number of programs with Webb approved to look at a particular supermassive uh, black holes. So in our own galactic center, but also in, in other nearby galaxies. And the reason that an observatory such as Webb is important for that is, I don't think not so much the accretion disk itself, but, but to understand the environment around the black hole. We know that there's a tremendous amount of star formation going on there. There is a, there's a much, often there's a much, much larger disk of torus around the black hole that is colder, will contain large clouds of, uh, of, of molecular gas and dust. And so these, the, these galactic centers are very often obscured by these dust clouds. And so and, and this includes our own galactic center. And so it means if you, if you try to observe them with... Uh, with a telescope that works in the optical and trying to understand that environment, that very extreme environment, you can't penetrate those dust clouds. You don't see it. It's just, you just shield. So going to the infrared allows you to, to see through that dust and actually see what is going on in the environment. But I think really penetrating into, you know, looking at the very, very hot X-ray accretion disk itself is probably something that's, that's, that's less well-suited for web and, and more for an X-ray telescope. Now this hammers home why infrared was chosen is that we really just, it's open, you know, and a lot of people are like, well, why don't we just build a bigger optical telescope, a replacement for Hubble? But Webb is actually better than that. Now, does Webb have any visible light capabilities? Barely. I mean, no, it, it goes down to 0.7 micron. And I think that is sort of very at the edge of what's formally considered the infrared. You know, it's no longer visible by the human eye, but it's very close. So for all intents and purposes, no, but, they, but it does mean that there's some overlap with, with Hubble, for example. So Hubble has, has a little bit of infrared capability. Now, the Holy Grail, exoplanet atmospheres characterizing them. 
James Webb promises to give us our first real ability to do that. What exactly are we going <laughs> to, how does it do that? Right. So, so the, there's a couple of ways, but the, the, the dominant one for Webb is using the transit technique. And that is using exoplanets that have an orbit that is inclined in such a way that the planet will pass either in front of its parent star behind it or both. And Webb will be able to look at both these instances, right? So if a planet is passing in front of a star, as light from the star filters through the planet's atmosphere, the molecules that are in that planet's atmosphere filter out certain wavelengths of that light. And it allows Webb to, to take a spectrum of that, that planet. The same thing or similar thing happens when the planet goes behind the star. So you can imagine that if the planet is not behind the star, you get the light from both the star and the planet. But the moment the planet goes behind the star, it gets eclipsed. You lose that the part of the light that's from the planet. And by taking the difference between the two, you can work out what the what the, the infrared spectrum of the, of the emission spectrum of that planet is. And the second part is actually really important for, for Webb because it provides a very important number that is very difficult to get any other way, and that's the temperature of the planet. Right? So it's not the same as, as measuring the, compos the chemical composition of the atmosphere, especially if you're interested in something like habitability, you know, knowing that the planet has actually has a temperature of 300 Kelvin, a room temperature, would be really you know, amazing. So yeah, so it's primarily using the, uh, the transit technique. And I think it's about somewhere between 15 or 20% of the time in the first year of the observatory spent using this method to characterize the atmospheres of, of a wide range of exoplanets with many different properties. One particular type of exoplanet that we don't have in the star system seems to me to be on the table to study with James Webb, the hot Jupiter. Can you, can we do a, and those are huge, so you can see them easier. Will we be able to get a profile of that kind of planet, a planet that we have no analog of here? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and there, there's a lot of observations of hot Jupiter's planned. And I think that's actually a very good point. As you mentioned, Webb will be able to, for the first time, to, to really look at like the smaller planets uh, with a rocky surface uh, you know, that maybe, just maybe potentially be habitable. But it's hard, it's really hard to do, right? And so that's the, that's the edge of what Webb can do. And I think that will be very exciting. But if you go to the, to the say, quote unquote, easier planets, the bigger ones, like the hot Jupiters, those are relatively easy to do. And that means that the data that Webb will return about their atmospheric composition will be done in exquisite detail. You know, so, so much detail that, that it will be, be very, very powerful to, to understand how planets, what the physics of planets are, what their chemistry is, general understanding of what a typical planet looks like across a wide range of, of planet masses and orbits and so on. So I think that it really goes to the core of what I think Webb will do in exoplanet research, right? Where up until now, sure, we have detected thousands of planets, right? but we know very little about each one. Right? We, know, we know its orbit and we know, uh, you know maybe its radius, uh, but not very much more than that. And so we have all these questions. Like one, one thing would be that you know, our planets like stars in terms of classifying them. We know stars, you know, it's, it's a bit coarse, but you know, you can think of stars as relatively simple uh, objects that, that are characterized by mass and an age. And that gives you 
uh, and a little bit, you know, their metallicity, their composition. But otherwise, it, it gives you its uh, its uh, its temperature, for example, and 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 you can create models. And you can understand stars. Stars all form in much the same way through a collapse of a of an interstellar cloud, and so you end up with sort of a similar kind of object. It's very very coarsely said, right? When you look at planets, the way they form seems to me to be a much much more stochastic process, right? Because it's not just a collapse of of a single gas cloud they they form in a, in a in a disk that has chemical and structural effects on it that act not just not only like climate but like weather where you have very chaotic processes that can completely change the way it looks they will interact with other planets that are also forming at the same time and that we think can really radically change the ultimate composition of those planets so i would expect that once we start to really get a lot of detailed measurements of the composition of planetary atmospheres and, and other parameters with web that we don't get any other way, that we'll find that we have this incredible zoo of planets. And I worry a little bit. I mean, can we even, will we even be able to classify them? Is, is every planet going to be its own special snowflake? Or is it, uh, you know, is it some general things that we, we can learn? And so really for the first time with web, we can, we can do that kind of comparative planetology. Um, so I think it'll be very exciting. That's extremely exciting because we could get finally get a profile of what planets in the universe look like. Because again, you know, we look at our our star system and it doesn't really look that much like others. You know, it doesn't have a super Earth, it doesn't have a hot Jupiter, it doesn't have, but it could simply be that all star systems are unique in a certain way, unique to them. And that just the, the panoply of possibilities for planets could be enormous, as you say, you know, can we character, you know, classify them? Oh, although uh, someone will figure out how to do that. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. <laughs> someone always finds a way to classify. But now let me ask you this. All right, so when looking at exoplanets with the transit method, some stars are better than others. So are you gonna be focusing on red dwarfs or is it a better bet like the, the type K type stars? Or, you know, what, what stars are you going to focus on to look? via the transit method there, there is really a wide range if we, we we did look at sort of just the ensemble of of all the different planets that folks are looking at and remember that that the program in the first year of web is really created in a very organic way where about a third of the time is is uh, is awarded to what we call guaranteed time observations awarded to people who contributed to building the instruments and so on. But two thirds is, is, is just available to anybody in the, in the community to propose for, and it gets selected through peer review. And so you end up with a lot of smaller programs where in, individual teams decide what they think is best, right? And so it's very, very interesting to look at, you know, what is the ensemble of objects that are going to be looked at? And it turns out it's a very flat distribution. So we have, we have anything here but, you know, from, planets around M dwarfs to planets around solar mass stars to, to, to planets around more massive stars. We, if you look at the distribution in planet radius and expected equilibrium temperature of the planet, again, it's, it's also we have they run the gamut from you know, a couple of hundred Kelvin to extremely hot Jupiters, you know, 1500 Kelvin equilibrium temperatures. So it's, it's, uh, we're, ha we're happy to see that, right? I mean, it's not something we enforce, we're happy to see that already in the first year. I think we'll get a very good sample of, of all, you know, most of the things that could potentially happen and then you, you flesh it out from there. Now, do you build in uh, the possibility 
for transient events into the schedule for JWST, meaning that say you're scheduled to do an observation for some science group and all of a sudden we pick up some neutrinos and there's a supernova about to happen. Can you just drop everything and turn the telescope to something like that? Uh-huh. Yeah, no, 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 excellent question. There, there are basically two ways of doing this. There are transient events that you can sort of predict, like for example, supernova go, go off all the time. Uh, so you can ask for what's called a target of opportunity program. So that's just as part of the regular proposal process. And we have we have a bunch of other, the kilonova observations, for example, is an example of that. We think we're going to detect a kilonova. And so when one goes off, the, the team that got that time can say, we're going to go ahead and trigger our observation and please go and observe it. Then there are different levels of, of how quickly they need to move the telescope. If it's uh, if it's more than a few days, then it's not a not a big deal. But if it's if it's less than that, then then it will just disrupt the, uh, the the schedule and becomes more expensive in terms of telescope. You know what you think of as telescope resources. The other way of doing that is that the the director of Space Telescope Science Institute, which hosts the the, the called the Science and Operations Center for for uh, for Webb and for Hubble too, and I mean that's my employer has uh, some time available that is that is that is given to to him and, and his role as director and so he can award what's called the director's discretionary time so there there typically there is a there's a process for somebody to say ah, i you know i i this thing just happened and we had not predicted that can we please go and observe it and you can put in a quick proposal and, and we can go ahead and, uh, and get that observed so yeah so there, there's definitely flexibility for that um if there's something that scientifically warrants doing that. Now, another type of transient event that's been in the news lately is the idea of which is this isn't as uh, as an urgent as like a supernova or something like that. Interstellar objects. Now, when we get certain land-based telescopes like the Vera Rubin Observatory going, we're probably going to see a lot of these. Is that on the agenda, looking at those on the, on the agenda for James Webb? And what could we do? I mean, could we, if had we seen a Muamua earlier and we had the telescope in orbit at the time, hypothetically say, could we have done a better job at characterizing it and answered more questions than what we were able to do just with what we have? Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, lo- I love those. I mean, interstellar, interstellar objects are fantastic. I love them. I, I can't wait. As you, and, and exactly as, as you say, with, with the Rubin telescope, we think that we, we're going to pick up you know, one a year or maybe more, who knows, which is, I, th- I think is a revolution from when I started out when there was just a question of how many of those were actually around. And it turns out that there are, there are a lot and enough that, that we, should, we should see them with some regularity. There is a target of opportunity program in cycle one that if one comes through and and it's not behind the sun or something like that <laughs> that that we, we can go and observe it with with web and there there are multiple ways that you can get a much better understanding of of such an object with web like for one is when you're observing small objects in the solar system like asteroids or other things and you're doing this in in at invisible light or near infrared wavelengths you're basically seeing reflected light uh, from the sun and uh, as we know, the, the, ref- the reflected light can uh, look very differently as, as the object is rotating around its own axis. Right? So they all rotate, you know, with a few hours or something like that. If there's a big crater on one side or there can be color differences. So people have used, and this is the case with Oumuamua as well, right? people have used these, the, the changes in the light curve as it rotates to try and estimate its shape. But it's very dangerous because 
because of the you know, potential presence of craters that can be shattered and other things that are not directly related to whether it's really elongated or something. When you look at a small object like in the uh, uh, at the longer wavelengths, the longest wavelengths that and Webb can do in the mid infrared, at some point you start to be able to pick up the self emission, self infrared emission from the object just because it has has a temperature, and that is a much more unbiased measure of its size and shape as it as it orbits. So you can put those two together, and you can get a much much better solution for for. Uh, for what kind of shape it has. So that, 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 that's one aspect of it. And another important one, of course, is composition. Just using the same molecular bands that we use for exoplanets, that we use for protoplanetary disks, and we use for other solar system objects, Webb would be able to measure something like Oumuamua, even uh, potentially before it gets close enough to the sun to present any kind of cometary activity where it outgasses stuff, even, even just from its surface frozen stuff on the surface, you'll be able to measure the composition of that. And then, of course, if it does get close enough and things start to come off as a gas, then you can you can observe that as well and, and, and measure its complement of water and potentially you know, methane and uh, other such things. So so absolutely, I think that will, that will be that will be done. And I'm, I'm super excited about getting getting that result to get this piece from another solar system in situ almost and be able to measure its composition and compare that to our own local comets, I think would be, you know, be very exciting. It'd be interesting either way, because if it's, it's sort of like with Borisov, it could either be very, very similar or it could be different in a very puzzling way. I mean, some people have hypothesized about the phosphorus problem in the galaxy that maybe some areas don't have as much phosphorus. Can we answer questions like that? Or are we limited on what we can measure about the chemistry of one of these things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm also kind of curious about it. So, so those objects, are, of course, are incredibly, potentially incredibly ancient, have traveled through the galaxy. Uh, who knows what kind of environments they have seen. Their surfaces will get processed by energetic radiation, depending on what, what they have seen over time. So they may also contain some, some history of, of the galaxy and, and within their, their chemistry. It gets more complicated, but I, I think, I think what, once we get compositions, there will be, there'll be a lot of questions raised, but you know, that, that's why we're here. That's, that's why it's, it's, it's exciting work. Well, that's one of the things about Oumuamua. I mean, what did it go through that might have caused it to behave strangely as it did? For example, if it if it forms some kind of a crust or something like that, and that's why we didn't see outgassing, but there was outgassing, you know, because of the acceleration and all these things, could simply be due to factors we don't yet know about what happens to objects in the interstellar medium. Exactly, yeah. And another question I've always had is is that now we we starting to get an understanding for how how uh, how many there are of these sort of fossilized comets just floating between the stars. That this is. This is probably a net sink of, of water, for example, or other volatiles in the universe, because they have incredibly long lifetimes. So you, you imagine the galaxy is going through multiple stages of star formation. Every time you form a star, you form a, a protoplanetary disk around it that you know, forms planets. And then that's, the disk probably turns out to inject, eject perhaps most of it, uh, by, some fra- uh, uh, by some margin, most of its material in the form of these planetesimals just beyond uh, the system itself. And they never go back into the cycle. Right? They're, never, they're never used again to create new stars. They just, they just sit there inert and you lose that, that, uh, that, that oxygen or that carbon 
uh, now we're gonna we, we can actually get an, an idea of what that number is you know how, how, how much of that material is actually lost and maybe most of the water in the universe is actually in the form of Oumuamua's. Studying the outer solar system what can we do with JP, JWST as far as studying worlds that are not so easy to study like Uranus and Neptune? Yeah so all planets from Mars and outwards and their moon systems are scheduled for observation and typically for spectroscopic observation. And of course, you know, we're looking at, at uh, outgassing from potential water worlds. The obvious ones are, are Enceladus and Europa, but there's also uh, Triton, for example, I'm talking about the ice giants. And then there, there's a large program, so not related to, to the planets, but to trans-Neptunian objects, because again, this fantastic sensitivity we get for spectroscopy and in the infrared allows us to measure the composition of large numbers of trans-Neptunian objects, Plut you know, Plutos, uh, without having to send a probe. That's right now we only have a few measurements like that from New Horizons, for example, but we'll be able to do hundreds with with Webb and again get this kind of populational understanding of what this fossilized record of our only early solar system looks like. Now, that's, that brings us back to protoplanetary disks, because those obviously emit in infrared. So basically, the, the web is, is a multi-role telescope. In other words, it's designed to be able to do everything Hubble did, but in infrared instead of visible light. So can people expect the same sort of amazing imagery that Hubble produced, or could it even do better? Yeah, no, no good, good question. Uh, this is something that I'm working with as well. Obviously, we want to to try and produce some imagery that is evocative of the, the Hubble success and the, the, sort of the transformative role that that played in in the, in the public's interest in science and in science education, just by virtue of its of its fantastic imagery. And so the short answer is yes, we will get the same quality of images from from Webb. In, in fact, I mean the fields of view are a bit bigger or have more pixels so more more megapixels in the, in the images but of course there will be different ways that we can speculate about and we can simulate but you know i think we're not really going to have a proper understanding of what it will look like until we see we see the data and it's different because it's different wavelengths it's different tracers galaxies will look different so what you see with hubble for example let's say you're looking at an image of a galaxy obtained with hubble you see the stars and you see you see dark lanes of, of dust you know, crisscrossing the galaxy. With Webb, as you go to longer infrared wavelengths, well, the first thing you're going to see is that that dust just disappears in, in the near infrared. And you just get the stars. And I think that's going to look a little, little less colorful. But then once you go beyond, really beyond the Hubble range and into the mid-infrared, the galaxy switches around. You see the, 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 these dark dust lanes suddenly in emission. They light up like fire. And it becomes the brightest part of the galaxy. And we, we've seen this before, of course, with other infrared telescopes, but never in very high resolution. So now we're going to get these very high resolution images, of these fiery dust lanes across the, the galaxy. Webb has many uh, imaging filters, which means we can, we can create images that show colors with a great amount of detail. So we know all this, all this will happen, but we just, we haven't quite, we haven't figured out yet, you know, which, which, field, which combinations of colors will look the, will, will give the most detail, necessarily, not necessarily how to tell the story 
of, of those colors, right? Because these are not visible colors anymore. They will be colors that no human can see. They're real colors, but but colors that, that you can't see with your eye. Colors you can't see with your eye. There's something poetic about that. Very interesting that there is a whole spectrum, actually many spectrums that we just can't see. Now, a question is, another nuts and bolts question is, okay, so you're looking at infrared. What difference is there between a telescope mirror for infrared observation versus an optical one? What do you coat that thing with? So, yeah, no, there, there you you would not be able to take um take Hubble's mirror and put it on on an infrared telescope like Webb and get a very good result um, because you need the the mirror surface to be reflective at infrared wavelengths, and that's an important reason that the Webb mirror mirror is covered in gold, about an ounce of gold on it, spread out very thinly, uh, and that's the reason that it has that golden. I mean, that gold has this golden color. That's because it's very reflective once you get to red or golden colors and beyond. So it's highly reflective in the infrared. That's why the mirror is, uh, is covered in gold. Another big difference with Webb, it's not really related to it. Well, it's partly related to it being an infrared telescope. The The back plane of the mirror, the, the part that's not the gold, is made of beryllium, which actually has, has two, two advantages. One is, and telescope has to be extremely cold. And so if you take a a typical optical telescope and you cool that down to the cryogenic temperature of, of web it would just crack I mean, it wouldn't it wouldn't behave well at such extreme temperatures so you need something like beryllium it has very very nice behavior as you cool it down and so that that allows us to actually have such a cold mirror um, and the other part of it is that it's incredibly lightweight and so so we needed that to have to launch the observatory on an Ariane 5 and send it out to, to l2 so the, the total weight of Webb, not many people realize this, is it's only a bit more than half that of Hubble. And it, it, it weighs significantly less than Hubble. Yet the mirror is, is almost three times bigger. And a big part of that is that it's made out of this very lightweight material. Now, how thick is the mirror or mirrors rather? The beryllium, uh, so the gold surface itself is like, it's an ounce that's that of gold that's covering it. So that's extremely thin. But the beryllium part is, I, I have to look up the exact number, but I it, it's maybe 10 inches or something like that. What exactly are the temperatures involved here? How low is it going to get? But so the, the mirror is itself is about 45 to, to 50 Kelvin. And let me see, in, in Fahrenheit, it's almost minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. That, that's the mirror itself. The sun side of the sun shield is, is hot. Because um, again, it gets constantly heated by the sun, and so the five layers have to transition the observatories from significantly more than room temperature down to this minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. The instruments are, are yet colder than that. In particular, uh, one of the instruments, uh, the one that's called the mid-infrared instrument MIRI, so that's actually uh, only six Kelvin. It's cooled down to six Kelvin. That has to be actively cooled by. Uh, a cooler that essentially works like a refrigerator so it, it pumps uh, it pumps and, and compresses a gas like a refrigerator does uh, to keep that instrument cool in regards to the optics here on earth we go through all sorts of trouble with adaptive optics to compensate for the atmosphere obviously the james webb doesn't have this but is there any need for any adaptive optics technology yeah, no, absolutely. So, so it, well, it doesn't have adaptive optics. I guess the distinction is it has active optics, which means it, it is not 
changing the shape of the mirror while observing a science object. But the shape of the, of the mirror segments can be changed and will be changed regularly or, or refined or updated regularly. Um, and so, and so a big, a big part of the reason for that is also is the deployment of the segmented mirror. Right? So as I mentioned earlier that you, you have to unfold this whole mirror from a stowed configuration. And so it becomes really critical that you can, you can have actuators behind each mirror segment and you can twist the mirror so it gets just the, exactly the right shape. And there's another reason we, we know we're never going to have the hobble problem because we can change the shape of the mirror. We also uh, think that there's going to be some uh, thermal forcing on the mirror. It's like we're not going to be able to keep the temperature exactly constant as we go through our science operations. So the, the, the quality of the, of the imaging of the mirror will, will drift over time. And with some regularity, maybe once every two weeks or something like that, we have to go back and refocus the mirror using, uh, using the, uh, the actuators in the back of, of the mirror. So that's an important activity for the observatory. The close-by exoplanets, Proxima b and the TRAPPIST-1 system, these really interesting systems around very, very close stars. What can we do there? I mean, can we actually directly image anything there, maybe? Yeah, that's another good question. So the MIRI and MIRCAM instruments on web have, are equipped with coronagraphs that help to suppress the light of a very bright star to look for faint things next to it. And those modes will indeed be used to try and image exoplanets. Uh, there is a program to, for, for example, um, to look at our closest neighbor, the, the Alpha Sen Proxima Sen system to look for, for additional uh, planets in that system using those coronagraphs. Uh, that would be very exciting if you find more there for obvious reasons. And and for Miri, for example, uh, I think there will be significant efforts to image young planets as well, those that are still hot, although they are fairly warm, say, even though they are orbiting at, at quite large distances from the star, you know, it's much larger distances than something like the Earth or even any solar system planet, 100 AU or more. When they're young, they're warm enough that they will shine brightly in the infrared. We'll pick and be able to pick them up with uh, with Miri. So I think that's another uh, important area: detecting planets, young planets, directly in direct imaging. I seem to remember there was a paper some years ago about an infrared flash seen in a protoplanetary disk that seemed to be a planetary impact. Something similar, perhaps, to what Earth went through with Thea. So that's another type of transient that could be explored with James Webb, right? Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, I think Webb is not a certainly it's not a survey telescope, so I think it'll be hard for it to pick up you know, to to detect such a flash because it won't we won't be able to to sit and stare at at, a, at one object for a long period of time. But this is where complementarity and synergy with other observatories come in into place. So if, if, if another observatory detects something like that, certainly go and follow it up and, and understanding it, uh, it better. So that, that's, uh, that's, that's a good point. Now, my last question for you today is this. NASA has recently started putting some thought and interest into technosignatures, the possibility of seeing some evidence or biosignatures some evidence of alien life, simple or complex, and see if we can detect that and what ways we could detect that. It, what would James Webb be able to offer there? Is it really just not its its role? 
or would it function as something like, okay, you see something in infrared, maybe it's a Dyson sphere, we should take a look. So is that on the agenda or is SETI just sort of not quite what it was designed for? Yeah, Dyson spheres, I think not so much, but certainly biosignatures, uh, if that's what you mean, uh, in, in the atmospheres of exoplanets, uh, biosignatures being the combination of multiple molecules in the atmosphere that couldn't exist at the same time in chemical equilibrium, such as, as oxygen and methane at the same time. So that we'll certainly look for, and I think actually we have a real shot at, at detecting a, a biosignatures if we're lucky. We know with some effort and it'll be difficult. And, and if we can't quite get to that, right? Th think of this as this is an endeavor, right? That's that is generational. Where when Web was first planned, nobody thought we'd be able to do this. I think we'd be able to essentially develop the something like the transit technique, the methods. We'll be able to walk right up to that door in terms of biosignatures and in, in atmospheres. We may not be able to walk quite through that door yet. But we'll be able to take this huge leap toward it and the next mission would be able to walk through the door and it will inform what that mission ought to look like. And I think it will drive future missions, even if it gets done by the generation that comes after us, to something that's very large, which is, I think, what you need to, to make that discovery. I think, I think you can't do it with something small. I think you have to have something that's very large. And, uh, can't do it any other way and that's that's an important point to make web is 10 billion dollars if you took if you took the 10 billion dollars and you cut it out into 10 smaller 1 billion dollar missions you'd never be able to do the science that web does and that's true for, for for future observatories as well putting in the money to to build this big thing that is what you need to answer the biggest questions when hubble first came on the scene obviously it, it had as you earlier mentioned the uh the optical problem that it had that we were able to correct but once we did the the science and the pictures were absolutely stunning and amazing and it seems to me that the jwst has the potential to outdo that and be even better and really fire the uh the imagination again of the public with amazing photography so i wish you good luck plus i hope you'll come back as the mission proceeds and good luck Thank you so much for having me. It's been the best. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction John, author. Wrong channel. No, it's not. Thanks for listening. I am Futurist and Science Fiction author John Michael Godier, currently hosting Event Horizon and wondering where Anna actually came from. One day I had a tablet computer, the next I had a boss. Very disturbing. And be sure. And that's enough of that. YouTuber forever. Like, subscribe, and hit the bell. Sell out. What? <laughs> <laughs>